Um, and again, welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. We are glad that you're here. And um, one of the things that I say pretty frequently is um, it is really legitimately my prayer, um, I prayed it this morning, that uh, no one would be able to leave this place today without having had an encounter with the living God. And so I hope and pray that wherever you are with God, that that's something that would occur uh, to you today. And so I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, We're going to jump back into this little sermon series right now called The Prayers of David. And really what we're doing is we're unpacking some what we typically call psalms, that these were built into worship. But but again, you'll see as they're written, they're really directed in communication to God. And so we don't know, um, in terms of Psalm 129, we don't know the exact context of what was going on in David's life at that time. And it could have been any number of different things. It could have been uh, the situation where David's son Absalom rebelled against him and tried to overthrow David as king. It could be you know, after David fell with Bathsheba. It could be after the death of his son. We don't know. But one of the things I'm pretty certain as we look at Psalm 139 is that uh, David was experiencing what I think many of us would call a dark night of the soul. In other words, he was fearful and uh, he was anxious. He was worried. There was something going on. And this prayer, the Psalm 139, in it, he seeks strength and security and comfort from God. Last week, we looked at Psalm 139, really verses 1 through 4. And what David wrote in that prayer slash psalm then was he said, God, I know that you know me, right? And this wasn't just sort of that you know about me, but rather it was this, this idea of covenant knowledge, that God was in a relationship with David. But more than that, omnisciently, God knew all of David's actions, all of David's words that he'd ever said and ever would say, all of David's thoughts that he ever had thought or would think. And the amazing thing was the declaration is that God said, I'm still with you. Even though I know all of those things about you, I'm still with you. I know you. I'm not going anywhere. So what we're going to do today is we're going to jump into the middle section of Psalm 139. And what we're going to find in this section um, of Psalm 139 is that David finds comfort in yet another aspect of who God is. So let's take one moment and let's read. I'm going to read the Psalm 139, the, the majority of it, not all of it, but the majority of it, and then afterwards we'll pray. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18. This was uh, for the director of mu- music. It was written by David. He begins by saying this in verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. 
How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much um, for the true things that are communicated in uh, this psalm, this prayer of David. And so, Father, I pray today that, um, that you would speak to us through your word. And Father, I pray that as you speak to us through your word, um, that you would overcome our rationality and, uh, and that your word would be truer uh, than the voices that are inside our head or the voices that are in culture. And so, Father, we um, listen to you today. And again, we pray that through the power of your spirit, you would take these words and sink them uh, through our heads all the way down into our hearts, that we might be changed from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in 2002, uh, Brenda Heist left her house in Pennsylvania in the morning. She loaded the kids up, and she drove them to school. She dropped them off at school, and uh, that was the last anyone heard of her for 11 years. Um, Later on that evening, the kids didn't get picked up from school. They had to get a ride home with somebody else. They called their dad and said, hey, mom didn't pick us up today, and He just assumed something had happened at work and didn't really know what had occurred. And so he said, well, don't worry about it. I'm sure she just got caught up at work. Um, You know, I'll be home in a little while. He was at his mom's uh, birthday dinner for her. He got home at 8 o'clock that evening. This is Lee Heist, um, Brenda's husband. And when she still wasn't home, he called the police and he said, my wife is missing. And so the police began this big search looking for Brenda Heist. They looked all over the place. They looked all over town. They, you know, looked and talked to friends. They talked to all these people, and they couldn't find her anyway. Well, after about a week, they began to fear that something terrible had happened. And in sort of all the different options of what terrible thing may have cur- occurred, one of those uh, possibilities was that Lee Heist, her husband, uh, that maybe he was involved in this crime. And so they investigated him very thoroughly and very publicly, and people had opinions about what he may or may not have done, right? And, uh, and he said that, you know, in, in, in retrospect, he said there were all sorts of people that refused to, uh, to be in relationship with me because they questioned what I might have been involved in. And not only that, but they didn't want to play with uh, my son or my daughter, who at the time were 8 and 12 years old. It was this horrible, horrible uh, tragedy, again, that just sort of this shadow, this cloud over the life of Lee Heist and his uh, daughter and son. Well, 11 years later, Brenda Heist showed up in Key Largo, Florida, where she turned herself in to the police. Over the course of that 11 years, um, she had hitchhiked, she had lived under bridges, she had lived uh, in trailers with various people, she had lived uh, camping in the woods, she lived in all sorts of kinds of ways, and she told her story uh, to the policeman when she turned herself in. She said, that day that I dropped my kids off at school, she just said, I just couldn't go back home. And she said, I was sitting on a park bench just weeping and crying because of the stress and the pressure of my life. And this couple walked over and they said they were hitchhiking to Florida from Pennsylvania. And uh, she said, on a whim, I just decided to leave my life behind, abandon my husband, abandon my children, and leave everything. And she chronicled what the, that 11 years had been like. What was interesting is during the course of that 11 years, she didn't contact her her husband or her children one time. And so about six years after her disappearance, um, they finally had her declared legally dead. Lee Heist went on to remarry, 
And so, of course, when she appeared again in 2013, it was an utter and complete shock, not only to Lee, her husband, but to their son, who is now uh, joining the police academy in Pennsylvania, going to the police academy, but also their daughter, who was in college. And uh, what was interesting about the story, and this is the last that I had read about it, was that at that point in time, neither the son nor the daughter really even wanted to talk to their mom. They were so offended and so hurt that she had abandoned them when they were young. Now, what does this story have to do with Psalm 139? What does it have to do with God? What does it have to do with our own stories? Well, part of what it has to do with our own stories in Psalm 139 is that we often think that God has abandoned us, or we think that God will abandon us. That's what human beings do sometimes. They abandon people. Many of you in this room have been abandoned in one way or another. Someone refuses to hold up their end of the bargain, and it costs you dearly, just like it cost Brenda Heist's family dearly. What's interesting is in Psalm 139, David finds his comfort and his security and his hope in making a declaration that God will never abandon him, but will stay with him no matter what. Let's take a look at the various aspects of what David has to say here. Look at verses 5 and 6. Part of what David says in these verses is that God won't abandon us even in times of trouble. He says this, you hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And so the language here is actually battle imagery, right? Talk about trouble. And so there's this battle imagery. And David, of course, who's writing this prayer, this psalm, has been in his fair share of battles over the years. He fought Goliath. He fought the Philistines, the Geshurites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, and the list goes on and on and on. And what David is saying is throughout my life, throughout all of my battles, when I'm in trouble, I know you haven't abandoned me. You will not abandon me. You won't leave. You didn't leave then. You won't leave now. I know that you're with me. And in that battle imagery, he says, you've got my back, right? You hem me in behind and before, but you also have my front. And when it seems like there's no way out, when darkness surrounds me, you lay your hand upon me to remind me that you're still there. Beautiful prayer, right? Beautiful poem and a beautiful truth as well. There's a show that came out, I don't know, seven or eight, ten years ago now called Parenthood. And uh, it was produced by Ron Howard. And uh, in the story, there's a, a couple, um, Julia and Joel, and they've been married for quite some time. They have one biological child of their own, but Julia's had trouble getting pregnant. So they discussed the possibility of adoption, and they entered into all these relationships um, with teenage um, pregnancies, and, and those all fall through. And then uh, they get a phone call one day from foster care, and there's a, you know, there's a little boy who's eight or nine years old. We've got a picture of him up on the screen. His name is Victor. And they basically choose to adopt him. They say, we want to let you sort of enter into our home and become part of our family. And there's this one interesting scene after they've adopted Victor, who has, as you might imagine, a very painful and difficult story of abandonment from his own life. And in this episode, after they've adopted him, he's playing with a ball in the house, which, again, they've told him, don't play with the ball in the house. And you hear a crash, and he breaks a vase because he's been playing with the ball in the house. And uh, he comes up to them uh, sheepishly. He's somewhat terrified, somewhat depressed. And, uh, and he asks them, he says, so are you going to take me back? Are you going to take me back to foster here? Are you going to abandon me? And Julia, the mom, smiles and with tears in her eyes, he says, no, just don't play with the ball in the house, 
right? I'm not going to take you back. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going anywhere. But of course, in his life and his story, it would make sense that when, you know, you enter into trouble that you get abandoned, right? And so again, part of what we see here, David, is he says, you know, I believe God. I know that you won't leave me. You won't abandon me. Now, just a quick note very quickly here on Psalm 139. Psalm 139, nor does the rest of Scripture teach that we won't have trouble. It just teaches us that God won't abandon us in the midst of trouble. Those are two very different things. One of my favorite professors in seminary was a man named David Calhoun, who, by the way, was from Pumpkintown, South Carolina, which was just a little bit to the northwest of Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, where I'm from. If you ever want to make a pilgrimage, like a boiled peanut pilgrimage, you can hit both TR and Pumpkintown all in one trip. Anyway, but Dr. Calhoun, interestingly enough, did his, um, did his doctoral work at uh, Princeton. Absolutely brilliant fellow. Um, when I was at uh, Covenant Seminary, he had already been diagnosed with a particular type of cancer and had been through several rounds of chemo. And one of the things that I remember particularly about Dr. Calhoun is he just he was a slow, in a good way, kind of person, right? And you'd run into him on campus, and when you talk to him, he would slowly talk to you. And he would look at you in the eyes, and I remember having the impression when I talked to him that, like, I feel like I'm the only person that matters right now. He's taking time to be with me. And I think a lot of who he was was as a result of the suffering he'd gone through in the can- with the cancer. Well, he retired several years ago, and uh, recently on the website, the Covenant Theological Seminary website, there was a little article called Catching Up with Dr. Calhoun, and I'm going to read a little section of it because I think it makes a good point. He talks about retirement. He says, Traveling is something that Calhoun loves to do, uh, though his health has made this more difficult in recent years. He looks hale and hearty as he sits here now, but he has struggled with mantle cell lymphoma, a rare and incurable but treatable form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, for more than 20 years. So he's had this disease, this cancer, for more than 20 years. He also had a pacemaker installed a couple of years ago, and he's on medication for his heart. Though his cancer is currently in remission, he knows that could change at any time. He still visits the doctor frequently and is on a reduced schedule of chemotherapy. He also is required to have a colonoscopy every six months. He's had more than 40 thus far. I'm told that I hold the record at Mercy Hospital. He notes with typical good humor. As his attitude implies, Calhoun has not let his physical sufferings or his limitations get him down. My illness is just part of who I am now, he says. It has been hard at times, but it's also helped me to see that what I believe is really true. The Lord works all things together for our good, Romans 8, 28, and he does walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, this is a, an older godly man who, if you can't tell from that article, has been through all sorts of difficulty and sufferings and trouble and yet, at the, here at the end of his life, arguably, the sunset of his life, he says, I know two things to be true. God uses all things for his good and uh, for his glory and for my good. And that also what I know to be true is that he is with me, right? That's what David is talking about here in Psalm 139. He says, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of all of these things, I know that you are with me. What about you? Can you say that you believe that's true, can you, can you just for a moment allow that to creep into your heart and believe that it's true, that God promises to be with you even in the midst of your trouble, that he hasn't abandoned you, he won't abandon you, that he is with you. That's where David finds his hope. Second thing we see in this passage is that God 
won't abandon us even, even when we try to abandon him. So this is good news. We're going to look at verses uh, 7, 11, and 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. One of the things I love about the Psalms is that they're so honest, right? They're just so honest. And they really invite us to be honest with God as well. In their honesty, the Psalms are then plugged right into corporate worship, right? Even something like this. David here is saying, there are times when I don't want to be with you, right? There are times when I want to flee from your presence. There are times when I want to hide in the darkness from you. But David reminds himself, however, that God remains with him, that God won't abandon him even then. It's good news. There's a story in the Old Testament about Elijah. So Elijah's this prophet and, uh, you know, he does all these great things. And one of the things he does is he goes up on Mount Carmel and he has this sort of, you know, big epic battle with the prophets of Baal. And essentially God shows up and the prophets of Baal are destroyed. And Elijah is really just gets to see the glory of God. And then what's interesting is that Jezebel, the queen at the time, finds out about what has happened here. She's a big supporter of Baal, not so much of God. And, uh, and she basically sends a message to Elijah saying, I'm coming to get you. And you would think that Elijah would be like, bring it. I'm not scared of you. Look what just happened here. And yet what we see is that Elijah, in his depression, in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his anxiety, he's like, I'm out. And so we're joined this little story in verse um, uh, chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And again, this is irony here, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Over and over again, what we see is that in Scripture, there are people that they try to leave the Lord behind. <laughs> They're like, I'm out. I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with this. I'm done with whatever you called me. I'm out. And over and over again, what we see in Scripture is that God pursues us. It's the story of Jesus. Jesus came, right, to seek the least and the lost, to come and rescue them, to pursue them. What 
God is saying through David here is, I'm not giving up on you, even if you try to give up on me. Does anyone here this morning need to be reminded that God is with you, even when you've hidden from him or tried to hide from him? Maybe you've hidden from God simply by turning the radio on in the car because you want to ignore him. Maybe you open up that news feed on your phone in the morning when you're kind of supposed to be having your quiet time because the truth is you really actually want to avoid him. Maybe you've hidden from God in intentional immorality because you think he can't or won't go there. Maybe you've been fleeing from God by avoiding worship. It doesn't matter what, actually. David reminds himself and reminds us in this passage that God remains with us, that he won't abandon us even when we try to abandon him. It's what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2. Therefore, he says this, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying, this saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But listen to verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. How many of us this morning can fall into that camp of being faithless or, or just barely hanging on, right? My guess is that that's a lot of us today. It's me, probably 73% of my life, right? Just barely hanging on, often hiding from God. And God says, guess what? I'm not going to abandon you even when you try to run from me. God won't abandon us in times of trouble. He won't even abandon us when we try to run from him. And then finally, what we see is that David says that God won't abandon us even in death, maybe even especially in death. Look at verses 8 through 10. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, uh, that is Sheol, the place of the dead, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Essentially, in this section of the psalm, this prayer, David is saying, wherever I go in life, on this side of the sea or on the far side of the sea, you're with me. And whether I live or whether I die, even there you are with me. God will not abandon us, even in death. That's what Jesus says to the thief on the cross. It's, again, part of the good news. If you look at Luke chapter 23, I'll read this little section. Again, Jesus is on the cross. He's in the center. There's, there's a thief on either side of him. One thief has been mocking him. Uh, the other actually begins to turn to him in faith, and here's the narrative. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, that is Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. In other words, stood up for Jesus. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve but this man, that is Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, I won't abandon you. In several moments when we both die, when you wake up, when, you're, when your eyes awaken in heaven, I will be there with you, I will not abandon you. Second Corinthians 5.8 essentially makes that same point. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body 
and to be present with the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying there is to be absent from the body when we die, that those of us who trust in him will be present with him immediately. And so the message of not only this last section, but the entire uh, story and message of Psalm 139 is that nothing is a barrier to God's presence with us, right? Nothing can stand in the way of God's presence with us. Not physical distance, not trouble, not our own rebellion or our tendency to hide from God, and most importantly, not our sin and definitely not death. How many of you need to hear that this morning? How many of you need to know that God is with you, not because you're faithful, but because he is faithful? He's with you. Jesus, after the disciples had lied, uh, denied him, and run away, comes back to them. He basically recommissions them to serve him. And in Matthew 28, we hear him say this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Like this is to the men who just denied him and turned their back on him. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you. I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, this is what uh, Brad was talking about this morning as he led worship. Over and over again through scripture, there's this message where God says, I'm with you, right? I'm with you through my spirit. I was with you as Jesus. I was with you, you know, as the, the, the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. It's this theme that God is with us. That's what Jefferson was singing about this morning. God is with us. And as you look around this room today, you see these tables with bread and wine or bread and grape juice. And this bread and wine is a sign and it's a symbol of something that's actually true. It's a sign and a symbol that reminds us that even when we're faithless, God is faithful. That even when we rebel, God is loyal. This meal reminds us that when we wander, God, like a shepherd, comes looking for us to bring us home, to forgive us, and actually to give us life. This meal However, this meal of bread and wine is not for everyone. It's actually a family meal, and only those in the family of God are actually welcome to eat it. And so the question then is, how do we enter into the family of God? And the answer is repentance and faith. And so repentance means that we acknowledge the ways in which we've sought to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong and good and bad in spite of what God says. Right? We try to determine that for ourselves. But it's more than just acknowledging our rebellion or our rebellious hearts. It's confessing to God. It's confessing that rebellion to God and believing that he's willing and he's able to forgive all of those sins, all of that rebellion, and then continue in the process of making us more fully human to helping us to flourish. This family meal is only for those who've reached a point of trusting in Jesus and of giving up their own self-salvation strategies and instead trusting in Jesus' perfect sacrifice on their behalf. And so for those of you who haven't come to that point yet, you're welcome uh, to sit here and watch as the people of God worship and receive this salvation. Uh, But for those of us who have come to the point of trusting in Jesus alone, I invite you to come to these tables to take bread and to dip it in the wine or dip it in the grape juice And to remember that what's being declared in this meal is that you are forgiven. 
that God loves you, that you have been set free, not just in the past, not just today, but for all time, because God is faithful. Hear now the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, you would be present here this morning and that through this meal of bread and wine and through this scripture today, that uh, we would be reminded um, that you are a God who is faithful, even though we are and will be and have been faithless. And so, Father, we thank you for the declaration that the sacrifice of your son Jesus was more than enough to make us right with you. And Father, not just to make us right with you um, for a day or for a moment, but to make us right with you throughout the course of our lives. So much so that we are adopted into your family and we get to sit down at the family table and that we get to take part in the death and the resurrection and the new life of Christ. And so, Father, it's our hope today. We declare that our hope uh, is in your son, Jesus. We trust in him alone as our savior. We pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen.